it's been 23 years since I was in this era. And what's even, what's really shocking is as we were kind of, you know, we're putting up stuff on social media and making posts and stuff. And so we started getting flyers from, from that era and starting to actually see dates and stuff. I was only in the band, uh, for that year. And like, we, we didn't really even start playing until the summer. And then I was out by November. So it was, a, it was, you know, it always felt kind of short, but when you actually see it on paper, like how short my tenure in the band was, it was pretty remarkable. I was listening to some interviews that the two of you were doing around this, and I heard a shocking stat from Jamie, which is this current iteration has been around longer than any other iteration of the Serio, <laughs> which is just that weird trick that time plays when you're in the middle of it. And, you know, I was following the band early on. It feels like a lot longer, those years. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it's kind of, it's fudging things a little bit. I mean, we basically played a reunion show in 2011, the the 15th anniversary of Fueled by Ramen Records. We got to open for Paramore, which was, you know, both amazing. And there were tons of people there that had absolutely zero interest in actually, you know, seeing us. So we kind of count from then until now because it's been the same for for people playing in the in the band sort of in theory, even though it's been very sporadic. It's also a kind of misleading stat from the standpoint that the stereo had a lot of different lineups. Sure. Like certainly certainly yeah. once you were once you were gone, it I, I don't know if there was a steady lineup for any extended period of time. I kind of think of it as like two phases in the band. There was the the attention phase. So everybody that was in the band with Jamie was in another band called Attention. And so there was that piece of it, and then there was the BJ, Chris, and Jamie, almost almost really a three-piece. They would have other guitar players play with them, but you know that was the other core of the band during like, the rewind and record uh, era of the, the stereo. Obviously, you had to become somewhat of an expert having done that <laughs> podcast. Right. You didn't leave the band on particularly good terms, and you right. know, I know like certainly... Every time I've gone up through gone through a breakup, I've muted that person on Facebook. <laughs> right? Yeah. It. I mean, there was definitely that period. You know, wh- whatever the an- the antithesis of a honeymoon is, uh, <laughs> that was that was the period right after I got kicked out. I really kind of had no interest. We were still interacting because Jamie was doing work for Feel by Ramen, and so you know he did the artwork for the the uh, Impossible's record that came out after I got kicked out of the stereo. But by and large, I was kind of really, you know, keeping them at arm's length. And it wasn't until they put out Rewind and Record that I kind of came back around to the band and, you know, was actually actively listening to that record and starting to appreciate the the music that they were making again. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was obviously like a really slow road back for me and Jamie to get to a point where we're actually on you know, friendly terms and talking regularly. I think it's that thing of you don't want them to fail necessarily, but you kind of also don't want them to be a huge success the minute oh, you leave. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> like, I, I, like how crushing would it have been if, you know, kicking me out really was the key to success. If you were the dead weight that, yeah. that was holding them back. Luckily, that's not the way it went. Although, you know, I talk about it quite a bit in, in the Kings of No Hope podcast. It's like, I really kind of thought that was the trajectory for this area. They they were, even when I was in the band, they were having discussions with major labels and stuff. And it just kind of felt like, and that was the model at the time. I think, you know, hindsight being 2020, now you kind of realize like actually really digging in with Fuel by Ramen would have been the right move because Fuel by Ramen 
got purchased by a major label, became huge, and and was totally able to sustain really large acts uh, after that. Uh, but the model before that had been, you know, you start on an indie, and then if you really want to blow up, you need to get to a major label, the sort of you know Green Day uh, uh, path. Uh, and they just seemed to be on it. I mean, I, I really would not have been surprised at the time if that had been what had happened. I don't think I heard this come up in the context of the band and, and discussions. I mean, obviously, so many discussions that happen around the band are why you didn't make it, why you weren't as big as the bands that came later. And obviously, you know, timing is a part of that. But I, I think a piece of timing that gets missed from the conversation is by 99, 2000, the record industry was already imploding. Yes. Hundred percent, and they were, they had a front row seat to that implosion. You know, like they were l- literally having discussions with labels that would stop picking up the phone because they were shuttering their doors because downloading was the new thing, and you know there was there was no real way to go back from that. Does it feel like something you were chasing at the time? Yeah, frankly, you know, uh, I don't, I don't think it's it's not very cool to say it. I mean, yeah, exactly. Like you were in this like scrappy punk ska band that I loved, but in the first iteration of the impossibles before coming back, there's no way that band really like breaks through. Right. No, I definitely don't think so. <laughs> and, and we, and Craig Aronson, you know, a uh, uh, semi famous A&R guy uh, uh, who's no longer with us, uh, Craig uh, came to one of the impossible shows and pretty much verified as much, you know, I, I always imagined his take was similar to like when A&R guys would go and see Kid Rock and it's like Kid Rock was drawing, you know, 5,000 people in Detroit or whatever. And it was, was really huge, but they would go and they'd be like, what is this? I, I want nothing to do with this. And there's no way that I could take this and break it as a national uh, act. We unfortunately, we're no Kid Rock, I guess. So <laughs> we didn't. And maybe the, the Kid Rock of third wave ska, I think is maybe, <laughs> maybe fair. You know, and you alluded to that, the Impossibles reunion. Is there a way in which for you that was kind of a reaction to what had happened with the stereo? Oh, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> the stereo in its own way was a reaction to the Impossibles ending, you know, because I just wanted to keep making music. I, I was working at a 7-Eleven. So that was my career prospects outside of music were convenience stores. <laughs> so I really wanted something in the music realm to work out. So when the impossible stopped the first time, keeping that push going is what helped to form the stereo. The stereo imploding is what helped to from, to inspire me or, or, or make me decide that I needed to get back with the impossible's guys and say, Hey, let's give this another shot. Cause there was, there was a lot of love for that band. We, we, did really well locally and even kind of nationally did, uh, did pretty well. And it's hard to, 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 it was hard for me to totally walk away from that and just be like, yeah, there's people who want to hear music from us, but I'll, I'm just going to be over here working in a convenience store. Something I appreciate about you is that you have, you've kind of kept all those guys in your orbit. It seems like, <laughs> I, I, yeah, we're absolutely, uh, you know, it, we're, we're like family. I, I don't really, I don't really keep up with people from high school. Like I, I didn't really have that. I, I have friends where their friend group is still pretty much the same as it was when they were 17 years old, you know? And I didn't really have that for me. It happened a little bit later when we started the impossibles when I was more 18, 19, 20. And so, you know, th- those guys are my family and 
you know, I'd like to think that we'll stay in touch. Stay in touch, but even beyond that, that musical projects you've had over the years, it seems like you keep, you know, bringing back them back in and you keep collaborating. I'm always trying. I mean, that, and that's the thing. It's like, I'm always the one looking to, to try to, uh, to collaborate and do stuff. You know, we've, uh, still consistently over time will I'll occasionally write a song and be like, this sounds like an impossible song. I should send this to those guys and see what they think. And, and we'll, we'll, you know, bat it around and maybe it doesn't come out, come to anything, but uh, that is still part of the conversation. And, and, you know, writing with Gabe was sort of the first great experience like that, that I had in my life and continues to be a, a, a really fruitful collaboration. Anytime that we get together if he'll let me work on some of his music or if I can get him to work on some of mine, uh, I always really love the way that that stuff comes out. Somehow our voices also, I think, mix in a, in a good way, which is really tough for me because I have a weird voice that doesn't, uh, I feel bad for Jamie because I, you know, I'm like trying to harmonize with him uh, and, and it can be tough sometimes. But for whatever reason, the thing that Gabe does and the thing that I do seems to mix a little bit easier. It's interesting to hear just the process of writing songs generally, and that something will be an impossible song. And and I'm guessing that also means that over the years that things have felt like stereo songs, because I, I think the way Jamie described it, you came to the table with 10 songs. Yeah. I So I originally came to Jamie because I had been doing work as uh, solo music as the artificial heart. And so I had put out a full length, as the artificial heart, uh, I mean, it was, it was a band. It, it really it existed as a band, but you know, I, I had my own studio and I was recording the songs and, and, and writing everything. And when the band part of the artificial heart had kind of ended, I kept writing songs. And then I had, I, I started to amass these songs that I wanted to do something with. So I originally approached Jamie around mixing it because he's an amazing engineer and, and producer. Uh, I think he's much more talented than I am in that, that space. So I wanted to see if he could take it and, you know, really take it to the next level. And, and instead what he came back with was, Hey, why don't we work on these together? Like, I think we could do something with them. And that was fantastic because that I think really gave it a complete, completely different dimension than if I had just put out one more artificial heart record, particularly if it was just something where it's just me I'm kind of doing everything on it and I just kind of release it and it just kind of goes nowhere and, and dissipates, you know, <laughs> this was, this was a chance where I could both get what I was looking for, which was like to make, take the music and make it sound as great as it possibly could, but then also get to collaborate with Jamie, who's an, a massive talent, get him to add in his stuff, then take some of the amazing songs that he was writing, bring all that together into a new stereo record. I mean, it was just, it was kind of a dream come true 2011 i guess is when you kind of sort of rejoined the bands and and played right. the show at what point did the two of you start talking again well so 2011 we, we were definitely talking and but we didn't really keep up too much and and after that jamie did uh, a solo record uh and i and i kept up with that and you know i, I thought that was really good but it wasn't until 2015 i had a demo that I wanted to, I, I basically sent it out to everyone, all of my friends that I thought were amazing vocalists. Uh, and so one of those people is Jamie Wolford. And so when he got that, that was, that sort of like kicked off the conversations that led into, Hey, maybe I've got this other stuff that you can mix. So that was when it really 
actually started to become a conversation around making another record. Now, when you say you sent them to people you knew who are great vocalists, you were interested in writing for other people at that point? A song that is on the new stereo record called Perils of Underestimation, and there's a gang vocal part in it. And, you know, uh, doing gang vocals when we were 17 was easy. We got all of our friends to come into the studio. and We all sat in front of a microphone and, and yelled at it. Paid them in beer. <laughs> it was a little harder at that point. You know, I didn't really have those those sorts of options. So what I did is I sent my demo of the song to my friends and then asked them to make, you know, just a voice recording on on their phone of a vocal part that I sent them in, in like a separate file. So they knew like what the part I was looking for was, and then they had the song that they could kind of sing along to. And it it, it turned out pretty good. Like I think there's actually voice memo recordings in the final version that we're releasing on Friday uh, uh, buried in there. It's, it's, there's, you know, maybe 20 tracks of backing vocals, but some of them are from those original voice memos. It is kind of funny to be working on album for seven years and somehow voice memos make it into the final mix. <laughs> we had every opportunity to make them sound better and we chose not to. <laughs> what I think about my own career, I mean, there are certainly people that I just would ever want to work with again, you know, and, and obviously there was some bad blood, but there's a difference between having somebody sing, backup vocals on your record and actually collaborating in earnest. Oh yeah, for sure. But, and, you know, I think it was always sort of like kicking around in the back of my mind, like, you know, maybe someday we'll, once we sort of buried the hatchet and, and things were, you know, actually okay. I think we half buried the hatchet closer to the time the impossibles and the stereo did a, a tour of Florida for field by ramen uh, it was a bunch of Fuel by Roman bands touring together. At that point, things were like cool enough, you know, and I, I got on stage at the last show and played uh, the song 300 with them. And so I think that that was sort of the first like, OK, things are we don't hate each other. We're not going to be vindictive towards each other. Then 2011 was when it became more of like, hey, we both really like doing this. We made a really cool record back in 1999. Why don't we like actually get together and play music? And then from there, you know, I've said this and I'm absolutely serious about it. Sam Hardwig, the new, the new drummer is like part of the, the glue in that equation for me to like keep us, keeping us together. Cause I had such a great time with Sam and Sam is such a fantastic person. It, It made me want to be a part of that. And that like really positive vibe that we had going, which was never a part of the stereo before. Like the stereo was always there was always a a layer of negativity to it that I didn't, I don't think I, I like appreciated at the time because uh, in a lot of ways it can be really fun and funny to sort of be taking everyone else down. And like, you know, that, that form of humor that is really at the expense of someone else. It's it's what you do when you're in your early twenties. Yes, exactly. And, and, and I don't think we appreciated the corrosiveness of that, you know, when, when that's kind of the, the deal all the time in 2011, it was totally different. We, it was, it was a completely positive thing and really just had the the right tenor for something that I actually wanted to be a part of. Hearing you describe it in the first couple of episodes of the podcast, it seems like you were carrying a lot of that around that you were taking a lot of those things personally. I mean, as you know, as you said, you don't necessarily have a lot of confidence in your voice and there was a there's a moment on there where you're singing falsetto and 
in a, in a session and it everything kind of comes crashing down around you, it sounds like. Yeah, the, I, it was brutal. You know, I, I, I say it in, uh, in the podcast, but it, it really did feel like coming into a wake when I walked into the studio, uh, after singing that part, because it, there, there was already an air around the band of my abilities and like whether I was reaching the heights that the stereo needed to be hitting in order to get where they wanted to go. So that, that was already, already a part of it. Then you take, on top of that, making a recording, which, you know, presumably we're going to share and is, is part of, uh, you know, promoting the band to towards the next release and all that sort of thing. And, you know, you just biff it like <laughs> the, the final recording is not I don't think it's that bad. Like listening to it now, it, it's uh, a lot worse in my mind's eye. But it is also I can also hear the the pain and and almost like my thought process and and me thinking more about what they're thinking while I'm singing it than actually about what I'm doing. You were in your own head. It's it's very zeitgeisty to talk about this and and now we have a phrase for that we all know, but did you have a notion of what imposter syndrome might be at the time? I don't think so, but you're 100% right. I mean that that was absolutely what it was. And and you know, maybe a question of like Am I a minor league ball player? Like, do I really belong in the local circuit playing the songs that I wrote when I was 18 and that's it? Or is, you know, can I be a part of this thing that that might have a chance to go to go further? And yeah, and I, I don't I don't think that I had a lot of confidence in myself at that point. But really, I just kind of ended up turning a lot of that a lot of those feels into kind of anger and resentment. You say that in the past tense that do you that you had those feelings? Do you feel like you've worked through them or do they still surface from time to time? I I 100% feel like I've worked through them. I, you know, it, if anybody has someone in their past that you still would like to maintain some sort of relationship with but you have some traumatic event that you've never talked about I highly recommend getting a couple of microphones and just sitting down for two hours and really talking about it. It maybe it's sad that that's what it took for us to, to even have like a real conversation about it, but it, it absolutely helps facilitate that. And I don't like, I don't feel bad about it at all anymore, which is it, it, it was a weight being lifted once it actually got to that point that I didn't even realize I was carrying around. It's sort of a, a lower cost, version of some kind of monster of that um <laughs> of that group therapy yeah but also sort of like performative at the same time because you're doing it in front of a microphone so obviously you got a little bit of the heisenberg uncertainty principle in that oh absolutely takes on a different life knowing that a lot of people are potentially listening to this and maybe that's why it was better for me you know because jamie is like coming to the table looking to uh you know settle some of his past demons and things and so i it was Pretty satisfying, you know, to to have him be apologetic. But I, you know, I didn't spend too much time on it in the podcast, mostly because I don't think it it told as compelling of a story. But when we had that conversation, I definitely owned a lot of my obnoxiousness as well, and sort of the way that I I really devalued a lot of things that Jamie valued, and, and kind of treated him like he was stupid for caring about things like you know. 
the music, the, the quality of the music being really good and the live performances being really good. You feel like you intentionally devalued them because he valued them? In a way. I mean, I, I think I was anti- antagonistic towards him for feeling that way and just sort of being like, that's stupid. This is punk rock, you know, or like kind of finding, finding my way to be able to undercut the things that he cared about. And I, and I, you know, I think that probably was also a big part of the picture when it really came to a head at the end. I heard the two of you discussing this and it was really interesting to hear you frame it as we almost decided that JB was going to be the villain of Mm. the piece. Mm-hmm. That that was sort of the narrative structure, and how does that impact something like this when you sort of have that sense going into it? I mean, it, it was helpful from like a storytelling perspective to have an idea of where we were going, you know, and like what the the big picture was going to try and look like. I I think it I think it really was a situation where we let him take the fall. I, you know, we were just talking about the sort of humor you have when you're in your twenties and it, and it having that negative slant to it. All of us kind of the overall personality of the band permeated everybody. It's not like, it's not like Jamie was the asshole and we were a bunch of like super nice guys. (laughs) Like, like just the, the culture of the band was pretty bad. Like from, you know, in hindsight, from my, from my perspective, there were good times. Absolutely. I don't mean to, you know, totally write that off, but I, I think that's kind of true. And then I think that Jamie, just took all the vitriol for it. I mean, in part because he was the only constant, you know, he kept kicking people out. And so there was Jamie was the stereo really at its core, but I think we were also just happy to let it, let that happen. And, and, you know, kind of everybody scatters when, when we're trying to figure out like, you know, who made the call that the stereo was going to do this thing that pissed a bunch of people off. It was J word. He's the one who did it. You have a pretty f- profound revelation, I think, in the, the fifth episode when discussing the decision not to bring the original drummer back and have Sam play mm-hmm. the drums instead. Mm-hmm. I think it's through listening somebody else describe the process and essentially blaming Jamie for the decision, you realize that you had kind of done that as well. Yeah, I, I just stayed silent. You know, I, I was, uh, which is complicit in its own way, right? It is. It absolutely is. I was in a room uh, with Jeremy Tapero doing that interview. So we were face to face and, you know, he starts talking about Jamie wanting to get this drummer that had never been in any of the lineups. And I just, I just nodded along, you know, cause it's, it's so much easier than to be like, you know, actually Jeremy, I got a level with you. I, I was actually thinking that it would be a better idea to have Sam, you know, he was already in the same town as Jamie and I didn't fight to try and get Jeremy to be in the band uh, for the reunion show. And yeah, you know, I, I, it's, I I really shouldn't get too much credit though, because, you know, it's easy to, to sort of in narration be like, actually I, you know, should have taken that, but it would have been much more effective if I had done it in the moment, but I couldn't, I couldn't help listening back to it. Just kind of realizing that, that had probably happened countless times. And that was just one of the, one of the only times that I just had like evidence of it right in front of me. I think you do deserve credit from the standpoint of, of kind of realizing that, that it was something that was persistent in the past. And, and, and that is probably a big part of mending that relationship with somebody is realizing that I have my share of blame in this as well. I hope so. You know, like I, I hope that if, if people listen to the whole thing, cause, I, cause one of the problems I ran into <laughs> that I, 
I wasn't 100% anticipating is that because the podcast was coming out every two weeks, in the beginning, I would have people come to me and, and be like, yeah, Jamie's such an asshole. Like you, you really like framed it just right and, and got the, uh, uh, found the way to nail him. And I, I hope that any, anyone who started to have that impression in the beginning got to the end and saw a little more ownership of, overall of everything that had happened. And, uh, cause I, I don't, I don't think Jamie really deserves that. He, he's owned a lot of, what did rub people the wrong way back then. And I, and I think he looks at it pretty clear eyed today, which is, is, is really a, a pretty big page turn. I think that's right. And I am surprised to hear you say that people had that impression from the first episode, because obviously, you know, by the time you're sitting down recording the podcast, there's a certain amount of processing that the both of you have done and, and growing that the both of you have done to feel like you're in a, comfortable enough place to do this and you know he's he does an extremely good job of being self-critical and self-analytical i mean he's more he's he's more critical about himself than certainly than he is about anybody else and probably than anybody else is about him yeah i think that's true and i i didn't get in in the interviews i didn't get a ton of the kind of jamie wolford is an asshole vitriol i i think it would almost be really difficult to excavate that at this point you know like this many years later people tend to look at things through through the lens of nostalgia and uh nobody really wants to to dig up a, an old beef uh you know maybe a couple i don't think that's true necessarily <laughs> but certainly in in this context well but, but narratively people love digging up old beefs yeah i guess that's true i i just i didn't find you know, I remember at the time, and I'm obviously biased, right? And I'm going to be a magnet for people to come and talk about how much of an asshole Jamie is. I'm the guy he kicked out of the band. So it's like, you know, everybody's going to want to come and, and uh, share with me in confidence. But I, I just, I do remember more of that kind of permeating at the time. And that, you know, I could almost see somebody listening to the podcast and sort of being like, who thinks he's an asshole? Like nobody's, you know, I don't really see a lot of this. It's almost like you had to be a part of that, that scene and, and actually seeing it happen. Uh, I guess you, you had to be there, dude. I think the arc of the podcast book ends nicely in that you have this realization about yourself at the end, you know, through the context of bringing on a new drummer and Jamie says something I think pretty profound in the first episode. He calls it unhealthy ambition, which I think is a great turn of phrase to describe the toxicity of the band. Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. That, that really led to most of the friction, both internally and externally. You know, I, I think there's there's something about wanting it too much, you know, and and pushing too hard that can make that goal even more elusive and and push it even further out of your grasp. And I think in, in hindsight, that's part of what Jamie's talking about. But also feeling like when you have the goal in sight and you feel like you know how to get there, that you can cut any dead weight that you yeah. see along the way. And unfortunately, you were, you were that weight early yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's, it almost makes mathematical sense, you know, like just a, on purely on paper, if you're trying to do the equation that is going to result in the stereo quote unquote, making it, 
I, I could totally see it. I think if you, if you add in emotion and feelings and stuff, I think that's when you start to get a sense of like, Oh, actually maybe I, maybe I brought a little bit to the table in the songwriting aspects and stuff that gave the band a little bit more heart for lack of a better term, uh, you know, in, in the beginning that losing probably did not help them move towards those goals. It's such, it's such a funny thing about the way that the podcast is structured in that you are, you're out of the band by the second episode. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it always struck me. I mean, I, you know, I remember being an Impossibles fan and I remember 300 coming out and, you know, it felt like in a certain sense, it felt like an uneven partnership in that Jamie had the songs or certainly Jamie was, was singing on the songs. Is it, did it, did it feel like that going into it? To some extent, yeah. I mean, Jamie was just a lot further along. He he had more songs written. He had his demos were much better recorded than mine were. I was doing mine on a mini disc four track uh, in my house, and he had actually like gone into a studio and and recorded some of the songs that ended up on there. But yeah, you know, I think it always sort of felt like he had the the lead role. Uh, and then I'm in, I'm kind of in the sidecar, right? And that I didn't really mind that. I've always liked, you know, having my little corner of the band. And that the, when the Impossible started, it was it was more like that. And then I think over time, for better or worse, Gabe was the the Jamie figure in the relationship. Uh, yeah, because because when like the bands I've been in before, there would always be like the singer, and then I would maybe have like my one song or whatever. I, I, I kind of liked, you know, seeing bands that, that would do stuff like that or like the dead milkmen were a really big band for me growing up. Right. So you've got the, the two different vocalists and, you know, Joe Jack Talcum will come out and uh, sing the one radio hit, <laughs> but I'll, yeah, also it's like a Kim deal situation where like, you know, <laughs> she had gigantic and I think there was a tremendous amount of resentment there. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and that so I always kind of liked the idea of being in that position. Like I'm not the keystone singer that uh is uh, the lead vocalist, but I can come in and do and do my thing. And so when the stereo started, I was very comfortable sort of being in that position. I think it only got weird whenever the power dynamic sort of shifted and it started to feel like, "Oh, wait a minute. I'm I'm actually just a one of a cast of characters in a, in a solo project <laughs> and I'm you know, just as disposable when the reality of your relationship with somebody reflected that when it wasn't strictly just what you were putting on record. Yeah, exactly. You know, we talked about this idea of, of unhealthy ambition. I mean, do you, do you feel like the way that you were acting in the band at, at the time was a reaction to that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A hundred percent. I was definitely, it was, it was, it was half that. So, so there's sort of like the, the punk rock ethos thing, you know, where I can kind of take the high ground, so to speak of, uh, 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 saying that, you know, music should be chaos or, or, you know, uh, just feeling like, uh, things should be more punk rock than, than they were. But I think that was really what was fueling that was my resentment of my insecurity of my talent. So it's, it all starts from that place of me being like, I don't, I don't really think I'm cutting it here. And then it's, it's easy to then be able to point at Jamie and be like, you know, you're, 
uh, you're trying to take this in a, in a direction that's, that's too serious or, or too committed and it isn't fun anymore. In that respect, I kind of had a point, I think, <laughs> because there was not a ton of fun being had in, in that band. And, uh, I, that's not a, a great way to, uh, to be able to keep it going. Um, but yeah, I, I, there were, there were a lot of kind of elements to that stew at the time that was, you know, eventually going to boil over. When you're talking about wanting to break through, or at least wanting to get to the next level with the band, there's a certain point at which that attitude and that behavior kind of bubbles over into self-sabotage. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think, you know, maybe in some ways it's, you know, all of this is speculation, especially the parts where I wasn't on, on the inside anymore. But I mean, there was almost a self-sabotage element happening within the band. And and I don't think it was intentional by any means, but maybe between the sort of like culture that was, that was going on and, and the desire to make it happen so hard that it was pushing it further away. I mean, so many, so many elements all just kind of came together to ultimately hold them back. Yeah, I, I partially mean it from the standpoint that it's it's almost hard to reconcile wanting to be huge and then also wanting to be this little kind of like a ramshackle garage band. <laughs> and I, it wasn't so. I I wouldn't say that I ever wanted the stereo to be a garage band, right? Because it's it's I was under no illusions that we were playing very kind of slick pop rock music. I just wanted us to be the slick pop rock band that also loved at the drive-in and like had, had that sort of injection of fury and uh, uh, energy that had been in all the bands that I had loved. Like I wanted to kind of keep that going. And I I don't think that, you know, it's not like uh, uh, Jamie hates energy. I think Jamie, (laughs) Jamie loves, uh, descendant style energy. Like that's his, that's like his pinnacle for that sort of thing. And the descendants are just the tightest pop punk rock band of all time. You know, just, I mean, they started off sloppy, but they got, but they got there. I mean, they, they were a hardcore band early on, but they really honed that. Yeah, for sure. Like when, when it gets to like Stefan Edgerton and, and just like really, you know, locking in, uh, with Bill Stevenson, I, I just, it, it got to, that was the the pinnacle for Jamie of like what, what punk rock could, could and should be. And for me, it was more in that sort of, you know, at the drive-in sloppier, you know, sex pistols, the sort of uh, vein uh, that wasn't like the antithesis, but was definitely like a different school. It strikes me now. And actually, you know, it struck me at the time <laughs> as well that the impossibles Mark two was more of that slick sound, you know, it, it was, it was it, you know, I mean, it, you know, you, I remember playing the, the, I, I, I discovered you through that anthology record, the impossibles. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a pretty stark contrast between the songs that are on that and the return stuff. Yeah. I mean, we also lost the ska element of our sound. Like, I think there was kind of a denial of, uh, early influences happening on that one and, and more sort of trying to embrace new influences and, you know, through making the stereo record, I think that got me into that songwriting mode. 
you know, one of the songs on, on the impossible's return record, Connecticut was a stereo song. So there were literally just songs that went from being stereo to being impossible's. I think it, it still brought a different energy to it. Once we, you know, played it in that band, you, you get those four guys together and it's going to be something completely different. I mean, I have to imagine that once you set certain expectations of what success looks like in this band that you're in, um, it's hard to kind of downshift those in subsequent projects. Yeah, I think that's true. I don't think I ever, even when the impossibles got back together though, I I don't think I was ever under any illusions that we were going to be the, the breakout radio hit. You know, I, I, I always knew that the impossibles had sort of this different thing that connected with a lot of people in a very particular and special and amazing way. Uh, but didn't have that same sort of, you know, broad basic feel. Like I, I, I never thought like the impossibles were going to be the Foo Fighters or something. Like that was, that was never in the cards. Uh, but, you know, to your point, I, I did want to make good sounding records. And at the time, you know, uh, to bring up the Foo Fighters again, the, the color and the shape was kind of like the, the pinnacle of success for me in, in that space. And so, yeah, it was aiming in probably a different direction where when we made the anthology record, uh, you know, the best sounding records to me were probably like punk and Drublick and, you know, uh, the blue album. Sure. But, uh, still pretty different. At any point, did you think that the stereo could be the Foo Fighters? Yeah. I mean, sitting in the, offices of Interscope Records talking to an A&R guy, you know, I can imagine it. Uh, you, know, you start to, uh, starts to feel like the, the streets are paved with gold and you're just going to walk on down, uh, to, to success town. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't, maybe not, maybe not that sort of like massive success, but I did think that the band had a shot at being able to, make that major label record that would be pitched to radio, you know, whether it would take off and turn into that thing you do where people are like running down the road, screaming about it being the song is on the radio uh, or not. I don't know, but it did seem like because there were so many opportunities to get at least to that one step further, it felt like one of them had to hit you know, eventually I, I work in publishing, which means that I have been laid off a couple of times and I'm always interested in hearing what, what that first day was like in terms of kind of assessing where you were and, you know, whether you could or should stay in music after getting, getting the boot from the band. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was odd because I wasn't kicked out. Right. Like there would have been more of a day after if the, the night before, uh, the band had been like, Hey, you're out. Uh, <laughs> good luck. Uh, instead what happened was I, I, we played our last show. And then when I got dropped off at my house, they were like, Hey, you should take your equipment with you. We'll, you know, we'll come back for it. So it was just this weird, ambiguous ending. And what's funny is like the actual sort of you're not in the stereo anymore conversation that I had was w- with John Janik, the head of uh, field Bar- or co-founder of field Baram and records uh, and him really more just sort of like making sure 
everything would be okay with them moving forward, continuing to use the the name and everything. Since really me and Jamie had gone in with like a 50, 50 ownership uh, from like a literal standpoint, you know, I know we, we talked a little bit about how Jamie more had the lion's share of the, the songs and stuff. But when we made those original decisions, it was, it was going to be 50, 50 and I, and I was fine with it, but yeah, I, I mean, I think I had a big chip on my shoulder at that point. So it was more about like, I'm going to prove you wrong. Like you kicked me out, but you are, you are dead wrong. I'm going to go do something. And we did, you know, we did several more years of uh, the impossibles touring and, and putting out another record. And that was, that was fantastic. So uh, I guess I was successful. <laughs> you know, How soon after that, are you on the phone with Gabe? It wasn't right away. We moved in together before we decided to do the impossibles again. Uh, which is it's a no- good sign that the two of you are on good terms that you're willing to live in the same place after being in a band together. We were willing to live together in a one bedroom apartment. That's that's where we were at at that point. That's like being in the band year round or being in the van year round. <laughs> it was it was intense. We made it work. It was it, I actually remember it being pretty pretty awesome. Uh but yeah, uh uh you know I think both Gabe and I, I I honestly don't remember the circumstances, but we ended up just connecting on both uh, needing a place to live and then found a place where we could both get by super cheap, which would leave us freed up to be able to do anything else that we wanted to do. Um, And then just, you know, I had a conversation with, again, with John Janik uh, and what John brought to the table is like, Hey, I think he's, he saw what you're seeing. You know, it's like, well, if you guys will be in an, live in an apartment together, you'll definitely be in a band together again. And so, uh, he offered up like, Hey, you know, I'll put out another record and we can put you on tour with less than Jake and newfound glory to, to as like the release tour. Uh, you know, would you guys want to do that? And it's like, yes, please. Yeah. I mean, it, it is funny that oftentimes in life we need that, um, relatively neutral third party to tell us what should be plainly obvious following the, as you said, successful Impossible's re- reunion. What's the next step in music? I mean, I know you had Slow Reader, and I know that you've done uh, a lot of these other projects. But you know, was was there any point in the process where either didn't see yourself necessarily continuing to make music, or it felt like music would have to take a backseat to life? Not at that point, because basically, what I did is I transitioned from. Uh, touring and making records with my own band to recording other bands. So I, I did some demos for the band recover. Uh, it's uh, Ross Tweedy, the brother of Craig Tweedy, who's the bass player for the impossibles uh, was in that band. And, and all, all the, the uh, guys in that band were kind of like little brothers to, to everyone in the impossibles. Uh, not, not just literally for Craig, but for all of us kind of, uh, metaphorically. And they, they were incredible. They, they, um, grew up in a, in a huge way and made, made a record for Fuel Bar that I helped out with. So I went to Phoenix with them and, and helped them make a record with Bob Hogue out there. Uh, and that, that was a really great experience. But then after that, they wanted to do some additional demos. It just happened that I had gotten a recording set up to, to do my own, uh, recording my own demos. And so doing that was a total turning of the page for me because after I did that, that recovery demo, it sounded 
fantastic. And I'm not just saying that to, to my own horn. The reason it sounded fantastic is because of Jimmy Vela. Uh, the, the drummer for recover is hands down best drummer in the country. He drums for the sword. Now Jimmy was so, was so great that he made me sound good. <laughs> and, uh, that became a great calling card for me to then, uh, start recording other bands and, and doing that. And so I did that for several years, uh, and recover went through their own major label experience. And I was a, a part of that journey as well. It wasn't really until after that ended, um, and then kind of like a, a subsequent project to recover, uh, Dan Keys uh, made a, a project called young love kind of once that wound down, that was the first time that I started thinking like, okay, maybe, maybe there needs to be something else, uh, to kind of, you know, sustain my life, uh, uh outside of music. I'm guessing at that point it wasn't seven <laughs> eleven. It was not. What did you start doing? Uh, I got a job, uh, in support for a, uh, giant corporation and technical support, yeah, like, like tech support stuff. Yeah. And I, it, it, it's gone, it went really, really well. And now, uh, it's give me, giving me the freedom to, you know, I, I don't really have to worry about that piece anymore. That is absolutely the American dream. That's the thing that they tell you about, you know, working on McDonald's and working your way up to manager that you feel like never happens but you were able to crack that code somehow uh yeah i i was you know i i think it there was a lot of perseverance uh and some luck and yeah i've it's uh i'm very happy that now you know i have a 10 year old son uh and we own a house and you know we we're not really wanting for anything and that's that's pretty incredible uh considering that i did none of the things that you're supposed to do to prepare yourself to get that real job. I, I did not, uh, go to college. I, I just really lucked out that I ended up at a place where it was more of a meritocracy and the, all of the experience that I gained from producing music and being on the road and managing tours and stuff like that, they actually, you know, valued, uh, that and, and allowed it to sort of be demonstrated in the work that I did there. So in those intervening years between, you know, I, I guess your producer life and, and now the, um, the band like actually reforming in a, you know, in a, in a tactile way, um, what role did music play? I'll be honest. Um, I kind of broke up with music for a while. It, it, it sort of hurt. Uh, once I kind of came to the realization that this was not going to be able to be my day job or my, my kind of like full-time life, um, it was tough. It was, it was hard for me to listen to anyone's music because it would remind me of the fact that I was not making my own anymore. Uh, there was, those were, those were some really dark times, you know, at this point now I, I've got a lot better perspective on it. Uh, and what's interesting is like during that time when I broke up with music, what I fell in love with was podcasts. And so, uh, you know, it's not, the, the two are not, uh, really all that far apart. You know, they're both audio mediums. Um, but that was an interesting way to be able to kind of rekindle something new in the same way when, like when I was, you know, 16 and I, and I heard, 
uh, Operation Ivy, and it and it made me want to go make music. I had a really similar experience with listening to something like Serial or S Town or any of the kind of documentary style podcasts. Really inspired me to want to do something in those lines. Nowadays, most of the podcasts I listen to are, are you know conversational, kind of talk stuff like what, what you do here. But yeah. um, the the original sort of thing that I fell in love with, and the thing that I ultimately ended up wanting to make more of, was that that type of documentary podcast, which is, which is very clearly the template for the stereo podcast, right? Yeah, I, I'm I'm much more in my comfort zone when I can do a ton of editing. Like if you would give me the the uh, files from this, and I could take it, and I could take out all of my you knows, I would be. I do do that, so <laughs> you're, you're in luck, but. Yeah, it's it's so I, I love being able to structure out and especially with the serious stuff, being able to kind of jump between interviews that I did two years apart, you know, but I can have one person start a thought and another person complete it. Uh, it's just a really satisfying uh, art form for me to to get to engage in. And it is pretty incredible 180. I mean, it's amazing when we're in a different place emotionally, the difference there between being at a point in your life where you were so done with music that you weren't you that you just weren't able to listen to anybody else's to doing a podcast where you dissected the you know the the day-to-day machinations of this band that broke up in a not great way i mean you must have been in a profoundly different place in your life I've never taken a single second to think about it, but now in this conversation, I'm realizing like it, it was the road back to music for me. Like I was able to, to take the, the podcast, uh, uh, road back and, and yeah, and, you know, not too long after that. So, so the, t- the time period that I quote unquote broke up with music, that was around like 2008 ish. And I was, I was still doing things occasionally, um, but you know, by the time we got to 2015, I had already started getting the bug again and started getting the itch, uh, where you, you know, I'd pick up a guitar and I'd, I'd start playing something and be like, Oh, that would actually make a pretty good song. So the, it, it did sort of incrementally start happening more and more, but yeah, I think you're right. The sort of culmination of it and fully bring me back to the point where we're actually like putting out a new record. Uh, I think the, the podcast was a way to be able to get to that place. And it sounds like the dynamic, obviously not from a sort of interpersonal friendship standpoint, but musically hasn't changed in that the it's because Jamie, I think is do, was doing so much of the heavy lifting in the production of this album that you felt like you could go and work on this separate project. Yeah. And I'm a lot less precious now, you know, I think, Back in the day, if if I wrote a song, I would want to kind of be there for every decision being made with it and, and, you know, have a try and hold on to that sense of ownership all the way through where now I am more than happy to write this, you know, demo out the song as much of it as I have and then just hand that to Jamie and let him do his thing for, you know, a week send it back to me. It's in a different key. It's got completely different <laughs> instruments on it than we're on it originally. Uh, you know, there, there are some that had that changed really radically through that process. And, and back then I probably would have been horrified. 
would have been like, why are you trying to steal my song? You know, like I had this song and now you took it and you turned it into your song by, by doing, making all these changes instead. Now I'm, I'm not precious with it at all. And it's like, wow, you, you brought me this like whole new song that I now can appreciate both for the things that I liked about what I originally wrote, but then also for everything that you brought to it. You know, you've got this, this, this beautiful domestic life. Now you've got a kid, you've got this great, like steady job, you know, <laughs> sure. You know, the album obviously, you know, coming out and we, you know, in a lot of ways we still are very much in this pandemic, but you know, when, when the time comes and, and if you do feel comfortable touring and playing more and you know perhaps uh putting out more records uh, whether it's with the stereo or the impossibles I, I mean do you foresee going forward music continuing to play an important role in your life i think so um you know i i love playing the occasional show uh whenever we can get the get to, together the logistics to make that happen and it is very complicated with uh you know, two of us living in Phoenix, uh, one, uh, Chris is in Pittsburgh and then me being in Texas. It's, uh, it's a, it, it can be, you have to do a lot of, uh, math to be able to figure out like what's, what's going to be able to make sense to make that happen. But, uh, uh, you know, I love, I love playing those shows. I love kind of being in like quasi sort of reunion show, uh, stage of my, my musical life. You know, I, I'm, that that is a really nice place to be. I've always had this sense of I think some people are are kind of like songbirds, you know, like you're you're just kind of born with uh, a a song in your heart, so to speak, and you you want to express that. And for me, the thing that I've found is I have a hard time expressing it and making it and then just having it sit on a shelf or no one else ever hearing it. I don't know if it's just because from the time that I was 18 years old, like all the music that I ever wrote was getting put on records and, and released. And so I've just like gotten used to that, like having people, you know, provide me feedback and be able to, to see the fruits of, of my labor out there. So I, I, you know, I, I have this sense that that will kind of continue for as long as I'm able to do it. Cause it just kind of feels like a part of my DNA. 